Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this Retin UK information evening for Northern Ireland. Retin UK are hosting a series of webinars on different topics and geographical locations, and we'll be delivering at least one of these uh, each month. We're really pleased to have a number of uh, eminent speakers join us this evening. Uh, we welcome Miss Julie Silvestri, Miss um, Evelyn McLoon, Dr. Alex Young, Miss Claire Kirk, and Miss Laura Cushy. Uh, all from, um, from Northern Ireland. This amazing group will be taking us through various subjects over the next couple of hours about subjects including um, updates on uh, genotyping and inherited retinal disorders in both the adult and the pediatric uh, populations. We'll be looking at inheritance patterns as well as navigating towns and cities with sight loss. Uh, we're also joined this evening by uh, Denise Rawdon from the Retin UK team, who will talk about our unlocked genetics resources. So there'll be plenty of opportunities for you to ask questions throughout this evening. Um, so at the end of each session, we'll be asked, uh, answering uh, questions, and we will also have a, a Q&A session at the end of the evening. And there are a couple of ways for you to do this. Um, you can either type your question in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens, these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Alternatively, you can raise your hand by pressing the Alt and Y key if you're using a Windows computer or Option and Y if you're using a Mac. Uh, and this will then, we will then ask you to unmute your microphone so you can ask the questions in person. So please do leave your questions throughout the presentation and we will have them all answered as we go through the evening. We will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can. However, any questions we're not able to get to today, uh, we will follow up over the next couple of weeks with those answers. So thank you once again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker this evening, Julie Silvestri. Good evening. Thank you very much, Matthew. Can you hear me loud and clear? We can. Thank yeah. you, Julie. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, setting this up and giving us the opportunity to uh, speak to, um, to the patients and their relatives and update them uh, on what's going on in Northern Ireland. So um, I'm going to start off giving um, a brief overview of where we are with um, genetic testing for um, individuals with an inherited retinal degeneration in Northern Ireland. And it has been slow progress. Um, however, more recently, we were um, very grateful to receive a grant through Fighting Blindness and HRB in Dublin. And uh, working with my two colleagues in Dublin, we've been able really to move this forward a lot uh, in the Target 5000 project. Next slide. And Laura, next slide. Um, so, um, what is um, an IRD or retinitis pigmentosa? And the inherited retinal degenerations are a group of visually disabled diseases caused by changes, mutations, or as they're now called, variants in the genes that are critical to the function of the retina. And there are many of these genes, which is why it has taken, I suppose, the scientific community quite a long time to be able to pinpoint the genetic cause for many of these disorders. It is also the leading cause of visual loss in people of working age. Next slide. So how common are IRDs? And 
It used to be thought that it was about one in 5,000 individuals had an inherited retinal degeneration, but it's probably now at least one in 2,500. And we estimate that there are about 700 people in Northern Ireland who are affected by an inherited retinal degeneration and about 2 million individuals uh, worldwide. So it is still considered a rare disease, but um, I, I think there are more people out there that we still haven't been able to contact in our project in Northern Ireland. Next slide. So there are about 300 genes involved in causing inherited retinal degeneration, and, and that does make it a, a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. And the scientific technology has really moved on in the last 10 years, and we are now much more efficient. When we started our project many years ago and we tested, say, 100 individuals, we maybe found the causative variant or mutation in about seven of 100 people. And now it's up to about 70. There's still about 30% of the genes that, were, that are unknown and, and we can't always find the mutation, but things are much better. And, it all, and I have to give a shout out here to Professor Peter Humphreys from Dublin. It really all started Dublin. Um, Professor Humphreys, Trinity College Dublin was the first scientist to identify um, the genetic um, position for retinitis pigmentosa in an Irish family with dominant retinitis pigmentosa. And then he subsequently uh, uncovered the gene known as rhodopsin. And basically the uh, pathogenic variant or mutation is if there is a bit of a break in the, in, in, in the DNA helix. And those of you who can see the, the screen there, there's a defect which causes the problem uh, with vision. Thank you. Next slide. So how are we doing and, um, and what are we doing? So I suppose our original vision was to try and first identify all the individuals with RP or IRD in Northern Ireland. And when we started 25 years ago, um, a high postdoc student uh, going around even shelters and putting up posters to you know, try and, and, and find individuals who had RP because there are many reasons why patients who have this don't come forward. They maybe don't know about it. Sometimes they don't want to uh, come, you know, come to see the ophthalmologist because it can have implications. I'm pleased to report that we now have probably identified about 80% of those who have IRD in Northern Ireland. And really our vision was to try and have a genetic cause for each person or each family in Northern Ireland with a view in time and to putting patients forward for treatment. And um, it's taken a long time. I've had lots of help from the genetics department here from Dr. Shane McKee shortly, and also from my colleagues in the South. So it's been a big effort and the patients have been fantastic and we definitely are in a much better position. Next slide. So I've kind of fallen in love with um, blueprint genetics and um, we initially started our genetic testing uh, through Manchester, which is a fantastic laboratory, but they very soon ran out of space for us. They just didn't have the capacity. And um, we hooked up with Print Genetics, um, who also do the accredited. These are um, results that, that we can give back to patients. And they have been absolutely fantastic. We send off the, the DNA. Uh, to, to Finland and uh, you know within four to six weeks I'm looking at a result on my computer and it has been absolutely fantastic um, so I would definitely have been very pleased with, with our interaction. Next slide. 
So how have we done? And at May 2021, that is sort of three years since we started the project. Uh, the project is coming to an end and it has enabled us to test a lot more patients that would have been tested otherwise. And uh, Shane may talk or may sort of discuss the fact that we don't have so much funding for genetic testing for eyes um, in Northern Ireland. So we have recruited almost 700 patients and, and participants who would also include their unaffected relatives and unaffected relatives are key to this as well because if we find what we think is the causative gene uh, change in, the, in someone who's affected we like to verify in an unaffected individual in the family so we've about 500 affected individuals which isn't quite the 700 but I think we're getting there about 350 families, and we've been able to test um, of 250 individuals. Um, and out of those 250, that's about half of the individuals tested. Um, we have solved um, 138 families. So not all of them by any means, but remember 30% at the moment are outside our reach. We just just won't be able to find the gene. So we're pleased that we've been able to give results uh, to quite a number of families, and many of these will be accredited and that they come from places such as print genetics. So um, we're confident in, in the result. Um, and that, that has some implications uh, for the patient, and I'll talk about that later. Um, you'll be hearing from Claire Kirk, who is our genetic counsellor, and he has completed counselling in over 100 families, and we'll be sending out reports to those who have results. Next slide. So, what is the importance of knowing a result? And it gives you a precise diagnosis. Um, when we, as ophthalmologists, look into the eyes, the findings in in retinitis pigmentosa, for instance, are fairly similar. And looking in sometimes gives you a precise diagnosis, but in most cases it doesn't. It can, depending on the gene is causing it, you can have a better idea of the course of the disease. And probably more importantly, it gives you a precise mode of inheritance. Uh, and Claire will talk to this shortly, but it is important to know if a disease is inherited in a dominant fashion or a recessive fashion, because that has implications, obviously, for other family members. It can help with family counselling and also for family planning. And I always remember somebody coming up at, at the Fighting Blindness Conference in Dublin, someone who is actually very well known in the field and is a patient. And she said, I've laboured my life thinking I had a recessive disease because nobody else previously to that had had it. Then she had her mutation and she has a dominant these uh, inheritance pattern. So that has implications uh, for her. And she, she says it's so important just know. And also it now puts patients at the start line for therapies, gene therapies and some other therapies as well. Next slide. So this is a bit of a complicated slide, but um, again, it just really shows that 30% of the genes are unknown. About a third of the genes are the ABCA4. And another reason why it's important to know your mutation is because vitamin A in large quantities anyway can actually make retinopathy worse if you carry an ABCA4 mutation. So there are other, you know, there are useful reasons for knowing as well that sometimes you can moderate the disease. Next slide. 
So what is available? And my patients tell me all the time, you've been telling me for 30 years that um, treatment's around the corner. And it must, I appreciate just how frustrating it is, but treatment is actually here. And at the moment, we have a nice approved treatment for patients who have a particular type of RP. And these are children, usually babies born um, and quite badly affected the disease. And this is approved treatment, um, quite expensive, but it's funded by government and both eyes are treated. Um, it's expected that there will be 80 patients in the UK with this genetic mutation. And um, I think to date, I understand they found 46. So we, we, there's still a number of patients out there. My team and I have been looking everywhere. We've been doing genetic testing. Shane's been looking on this database. We cannot find anyone in Northern Ireland, which is um, disappointing, but we're still trying because it would be just so great to be able to have someone treated and Evan and Alex will talk about the pediatric side of it uh, and they may have some insights into that. Um, there, gene therapy trials and other trials go in phases. Phase one is very experimental. Phase two is there's been some proof um, you know, of, of efficacy and then it's tested further and phase three then fairly certain that it's beneficial but it's still in trial phase and there are phase three trials for um, RPR, which is an X-linked um, gene, and also coderemia, and we have the RPGR trial starting in Dublin. Um, it's been pushed by COVID, it surely has started by now, but we're hoping that um, one of our patients may um, be able to enter uh, that trial. So are, these are exciting times and things are coming along, so I feel certainly it's very key to try and give the patients their, their genetic um, mutation if we can. Thanks. Next um, slide. So that's me. Um, and I'd just like to thank the team. You can see there, um, it takes a very big team. And um, I'd also like to thank our funders, the MRCG, HRB, and Fight and Blindness, and more recently, Belfast Homes for the Blind, who gave money um, to Genotype uh, for their 32 patients. So um, it's, it's, it's been a great help. And I'm sad the fun is at an end, but I haven't given up yet. See if we can get um, everybody else genotyped. So thank you very much. Um, thank you. That's great, Judy. Thank you ever so much for that. Um, if anybody has any questions uh, immediately, then um, please do pop them in the um, in the Q and A box. Uh, alternatively, we'll come back to Julie later on in the session this evening. So we've had nothing come through at the moment, Julie. Um, I think what we'll do is if we um, come across to um, Evelyn. Good evening, Evelyn. Thank you for joining us. Um, and yeah. if we cover the uh, the pediatric side of things, perhaps there'll be some uh, some more questions for Evelyn yeah. and Julie yeah. to. Um, yeah. Angie, I wonder could I ask if one of the other speakers could go next because Alex, who's coding this talk, has texted me to say he's delayed. Hopes to get on in about five or ten minutes. Would there be any possibility one of the other talkers going first? Yeah, me, is it? Okay, Claire, go next. Would that be okay? Absolutely fine. Please do. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you. That's fine, Evan. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, we will uh, go across to uh, Claire Kirk, who um, is a genetic counsellor. 
Okay, thank you, Matthew. Can you hear me okay? We can indeed. Great. Well, I'm quite glad to be going now because then I can relax and enjoy the rest of the talks. Um, thank you for having me to speak to everybody. And um, I'm just going to do a little piece on, on genetics and the, the way the genes are inherited in our families. Um, Miss Ulstry has mentioned that already, and it, it is very important to know. Um, and the first tool we use actually when we meet a patient is we, we draw a family tree, or what we call a pedigree actually. Um, and that's just a wee example of one there. On the slide, the squares are male, the circles are female. And then the ones that are shaded in black are actually clinically affected with the condition. And the ones that are white are not affected. So you can just see here, there's a three generational family here or pedigree. You can see that the black ones are the affected family members and the ones that aren't shaded are unaffected. That's our starting tool really. And we have that even before we draw a blood sample or take a live sample for genetic testing. Um, so there's very, it's very much a, a process of getting the, not just the clinical history from the patient in front of you, but more information of family members as well. Um, going back generations as well. So, um, Laura, next slide, please. So, um, this is just a little scientific bit at the start. Um, I think it's just useful maybe to get a wee bit of a background on terminology. Um, and we, we talk a lot about genes, but genes are found on little threads, if you like, called chromosomes. And the chromosomes are, are in our cells, so the genetic material, and the body is made up of millions and millions of cells. So you can imagine none of this is visible to the eye. These, these uh, chromosomes here are looked under a microscope. Um, in human beings, we've got 23 pairs of chromosomes. And uh, for each pair, we get one chromosome from mum and one from dad. So if you look here in the slide, the chromosomes are numbered actually just according to size. So they're numbered from one. The, the, the biggest chromosomes here are one, and there's a pair. They go from two, three, four, right down to 22. And males and females have this complement of chromosomes. They have the chromosomes one to 22. They're called autosomes. And then the last pair, pair 23, these are the sex chromosomes. So this slide here shows chromosomes from a male, and we know that because there's an X and a Y, but if it was a female, it would be XX. So just to take home from this, we've got the X chromosomes, XY for male, XX for female, and everything else then is an autosome, and they're very similar between males and females. So next slide, please. So there are three main uh, ways of inheriting genes, or as we call it, modes of inheritance. And as Miss Silvestri mentioned already, there's dominant, recessive, and X-linked. <clears throat> so when we talk about autosomal dominant inheritance, remember the autosomes are the chromosomes 1 to 22. So autosomal just means it's in one of those, the genes is on one of those chromosomes, 1 to 22. Recessive is the same, it's autosome recessive inheritance, chromosomes 1 to 22, but the X-linked inheritance is linked, is the gene is linked or is, is on the X chromosome, and the X chromosome is one of the two sex chromosomes. So that, that's just the wee key point there. Um, and this is the difference between males and females. 
So next slide, please, Laura. So this little figure here um, shows autosomal dominant inheritance. So it's autosomal dominant. So the gene is on one of the chromosomes, one to 22. So up here, here we see that we see parents. And the key with autosomal dominant is that in each pair of genes, you just need one altered copy of the gene in each cell to be affected, clinically affected. So this, this male here on this diagram, um, just for argument's sake, we'll say these are this pair here is chromosome pair of chromosome one. So one of the genes here, the purple one, has a mutation or a variant. And that's all he needs. He clinically affected with the eye condition. So there he is there with his mutation. His partner there has two normal copies of the gene. And then when they go on to have children, there's a 50% chance that dad here could pass on his mutation to any child that they may have. So if you look down here at the children, there's just an example of, of, of the outcome. So the first child here, who's a boy, who's actually affected, he's inherited the mutation there, the faulty gene, if you like, from dad, and he's just one of mum's normal copies in her egg. So dad's passed on the faulty gene in his sperm. Mum has passed on the normal copy in her egg. There's a child here next to him who's also affected, it's a girl, and similarly she has inherited the abnormal copy from dad and the normal copy from mum. And then the next child is a boy, he's got dad's normal copy, mum's normal copy, and the next child is a girl who's got dad's normal copy, mum's normal copy. So if you look at it there, it's actually a 50-50 chance that you'll get um, the condition. You'll always get mum, one of mum's working copies. You'll either get dad's faulty copy or the one working. So that's where the 50-50 comes in. It's at risk is, is from dad passing it on. So I've just said that there on the side for each pregnancy, there's a 50% chance that the affected parent will pass on the altered copy to the gene. So that's the 50-50 or toss of the coin. Um, next slide, please. Oh, that's just an example of what. So when we take a family tree, this is a very, very typical thing that we see for the autosome dominant mutations or genes. So the main take home message there is you've got not just multiple family members affected, but you've also got multiple generations affected. This is where we can see it coming down through the generations. And it's kind of very typical of what you think of when you think of genes and inheritance. That's the autosomal dominant, very in your face, if like. Um, so next slide, please. And then I thought I'd throw this in because um, Especially, I've noticed, especially in ophthalmology, that very often family histories don't follow the textbook uh, family trees that you see when you're studying genetic. You know? So if you were just looking at this, you'd say, oh, yeah, that's autosomal dominant. You can see this gene coming down through the generations. But there seems to be a person here in the middle, a person pointing at them, who's actually clinically unaffected. And people will often say to me, oh, you know, that skipped a generation in our family. Uh, so-and-so wasn't affected, but they had affected children. So genes don't ever skip generations as such. Um, sometimes what we see with these autosomal dominant genes is something of reduced penetrance. So sometimes you get a family member who does carry the faulty copy, but inexplicably doesn't seem to have the condition. Or at least if, if they're if they're examined by the ophthalmologist, they're very, they have very mild signs. 
Um, and we don't know why that person hasn't fully expressed the condition, like other family members, like their siblings, for example. But it could be maybe that their genetic pattern is just a little bit different, different enough to have a protective effect. Um, and those little genetic variances in the background, we don't actually test for at the moment in the clinic. It's something called personalized medicine, but maybe we will be able to do those sorts of tests in the future. So you can't weigh anomalies as such in family trees. You have to keep in mind that the genes always don't follow what or do what you think they might do. Uh, next slide, please. So just with the autosomal, it consumes, this is the other type of inheritance that's called recess. So unlike the dominant type where you just need one faulty copy in your pair of genes, for recessive, you actually need both copies to have a mutation to be clinically affected. So if you look at the parents here, they've each got one mutation on their pair of genes. So they're what we call carriers, but they'll never develop the condition. And, um, you know, you can be a carrier and, and meet a carrier, and then the risk is that one of your children may actually end up with both mutations, one from mom and one from dad, and therefore be clinically affected. So people are often shocked when they're they have a child who's affected with the condition and they'll say, well, this hasn't happened to us before. And they're quite shocked to find out that they're carriers um, and they would never have known they were. But it was just circumstance that they met someone else who's also a carrier. And then if we just look, follow the diagram in the same way that we did last time, you can see that this little child here has inherited. The first one has inherited mutation from dad and also from mum and therefore he's affected. The next one has inherited mutation from dad, a normal gene from mum, so unaffected, but actually a carrier. The next one, similarly, mutation from dad, normal gene from mum, clinically affected, but a carrier. And then this fourth child here has actually inherited both normal copies from dad and one from mum. So in this case, unlike the last one, which was a 50% risk, in this case, you've actually got a 25% risk of having a child with the condition. So that, that's, the, that's the difference there, that you can have one faulty gene, but not be clinically affected. You're just a carrier. Issue is if you meet another carrier and have children. So next slide, please. This is a typical example of a pedigree that we would take in clinic of an autosomal recessive condition. And this is where you have, you do have multiple family members affected sometimes, but they're all in the same family of brothers and sisters. There are not multiple generations affected, just one generation, that particular family of brothers and sisters. And it's because dad was a carrier and mum was a carrier, clinically unaffected, but that 25% risk of having an affected child has come into play here. And they've been rather unfortunate in this family in that all children have been affected. But as we say, chance has no memory. That risk uh, happens with every pregnancy, regardless of what, what previous pregnancies turned out in terms of genetics. So next slide, please. So of course, we will get a bit more complicated then as we go on a little bit, but thankfully this is this is the last mode of inheritance you like um, that I'll talk about, but this is the X-linked one. So this is X-linked linked to the sex chromosomes, the X chromosome in particular. Um, and there are two different scenarios here. So in the first family here on the left-hand side, dad is actually clinically affected. So you can see, can you see mom has the two X chromosomes? Dad has a one X chromosome and a Y. 
So he's only got one of those genes. He doesn't have a pair like he would do with all the other chromosomes, whereas mom does actually have a pair of those, of those genes. So dad has a mutation on an X-linked gene. So he's clinically affected. When you go down here and look at the, the different outcomes for children, the first uh, boy here has inherited mom's X chromosome and dad's Y, as would happen, because dad always passes the Y to his sons. So he, the boy will be fine. He'll get an X, the boys will get X from mom. We've got a daughter here who um, is affected according to this. She's inherited the faulty X gene here from dad on a normal call from mom. Another son who's unaffected, again, has to get Y from dad and a normal X from mom. And then this daughter here is also affected. She's inherited the X from her dad and a normal X from mom. And then there's another outcome here then. Mother is actually carrying um, a mutation on an X-linked gene. Now, it says here mom's affected. Um, I would have to point out here, whereas the men who have these X-linked conditions tend to be severely affected, women tend to be much more mildly affected and at a later age as well. And that's because the women have an extra, remember they have the extra X chromosome and, an, and a second gene, which often compensates and, uh, for, for the mutation, but men don't have that. So when this other is affected, now if we look down at her children, she has passed one of um, the mutated X chromosome onto this son here, the first son who's got the Y fad. So son's affected. Mom has got a normal X from dad and a faulty, that the little girl has a faulty X from mom. So she's affected. Son is unaffected again, lucky enough. And then the daughter is unaffected. She got a normal X from dad and a normal one from her mom. Um, I think actually it might help us to go on to the next slide and just see, maybe see how that looks um, on a pedigree. This is more like a typical uh, family tree for X-linked inheritance. Yes, you do have multiple family members affected. You do have multiple generations affected, but generally speaking, it tends to be either all males affected or males are very severely affected and the female carriers are just mildly affected remembering that they have a normal X as well. So in this case, the first of the male here in the second generation, he would have his Y chromosome from dad and the X from mom, so she was a carrier. If we go down to the third generation, there's an affected male. So he would have got his Y from dad, so you can see he must have got from mom. There's an unaffected female, he's got a sister who's unaffected, and she has passed her uh, faulty X then X gene on her son. So it just gets a little bit more complicated than when, when you're dealing with the X, X gene because, or the X chromosome, because, you know, the, the women tend to be affected quite differently than the males in a lot of those families. So uh, next slide, please. Um, is there another slide there, Laura? Oh, yeah, there's. So I just put this one in at the end. It's a sort of take and pick inheritance question. And, uh, you know, and the, this is why it's so important to actually get a genetic result, to get a gene and to find out what's going on, because we can make all sorts of assumptions on family trees. But really, 
they can only take us so far. So this, this actually, believe it or not, in this case, we could be talking about any one of the three modes of inheritance that they discussed. I know we said that in autosomal dominant, you've got multiple family members affected, three generations. But I think Miss Silvestri mentioned earlier that there was a, a lady at a conference who thought she had, well, she thought she was autosomal recessive for years. It turned out that she had an autosomal dominant gene mutation. And the reason it happened like that in this family tree is because the autosomal dominant mutation is what we call de novo, or it's a new mutation. This is actually very rare. But it does happen. So rather than having the mutation running down through the generations, it's actually occurred at the moment of conception in this, for this particular person. So it, it occurred at conception. And then as the cells multiplied and it became a, a fully formed human being, then all of the cells had this mutation. And the important thing, why it's so important to find out things like this is that person there, when they go on to have children, each of the children will have a 50% chance of inheriting that gene from their dad. The next thing is it could be autosomal recessive inheritance, as we mentioned previously. Both parents could be carriers. Um, his older sister could be just a carrier, so clinically unaffected, or she, she mightn't have the mutation at all, similarly with his younger sister, but he has inherited the two mutations, so he's affected. The third thing, thing it could be is X-linked inheritance. And if you look, his mother could be um, a very mildly affected carrier, as could his maternal mother, and so on as you grow up. So, so, you know, there's a lot to be teased out, and this is where the genetic testing is absolutely essential and is really the only answer um, in terms of working at risk, um, and certainly for things like going on for, for cures and therapies and so on. Um, next slide, please. So um, that would have a whiz through, and uh, especially when you get to X-linked, it can get a little bit tricky. Um, it's certainly certainly very, very interesting, and it's always very interesting to talk to families, and especially when they've been waiting for years and years for a result. And you can actually say, well, look, this is it, and this, this is why it's happened this way in your family. And, um, and maybe there's more we need to find out, like why some, some family members and Dunnett families have the gene but don't have the condition whereas other family members have it severely at a very young age so there's lots of unanswered questions but at least when you get your genetic result you're well on the way to to uh, to finding out what's really happening in the family so i'm here on a wednesday and i'm more than happy to receive emails from any of you i've met i've met you or at least i've had telephone conversations with a lot of the families now at this stage and i love to hear from you evelyn moore who's the research nurse here on a Tuesday afternoon and she's available. She knows a lot of you very well. And um, so I don't know whether I stuck to time or I haven't, but um, thank you very much for listening anyway. And uh, over to Matthew, thank you. Thank you, Claire, that was, um, that was fantastic. Um, again, as I said before, if there are any, um, any questions as we go throughout the session, please do put them in the, um, question and answer section at the bottom uh, of the screen. Alternatively, you can raise your hand uh, and we'll invite you to, um, to ask those questions directly. So again, just how to do that. Um, if you're using a Windows computer, you can use the Alt and Y key, or if you're on a Mac, it's the Option and Y key. Um, if you're on a, a tablet device, then you can 
Um, I think it's under reactions and you can raise your hand that way. Um, so I have got one question coming, which I'll read now. Um, and so I saw a presentation recently that discussed how possible it may be to determine outcomes for stargards based on retinal photographs and scan patterns. Uh, of personal interest, the presentation mentioned it may be possible to determine, for example, if a foveal sparring outcome could be expected in late onset stargards. It was curious if there was any UK Ireland discussions regarding this. It's great to have a confirmed ABCA4 diagnosis, but curious if expected outcomes might be better identified also at some stage in the future. Um, I wonder whether that is a question for Julie to answer at the moment, if uh, Julie is there, and if anybody else wants to um, to weigh in. Yeah, hi, thank you, and thank you to the person who asked the question. Um, very good question, and part of the research project has actually been try and identify prognosis, and just to answer that very question, um, the David King's team in Dublin have are a bit further ahead on this, and they are actually providing the information for patients. Um, we, I've had a discussion about this with some of the patients, and some of them said, well, I, I don't really want to know. Others are very keen to know the prognosis. So I, I, I think if some is very keen to know, we would be happy to, to look and, and look at the mutation. And certainly an ABI4 probably would be you know, more possible than, other, than in some of the sort of lesser um, known genes. So um, definitely, if, if you want to know, if you want to email either Claire or Evelyn, and we can we can take a look at that for you. We haven't been offering it routinely, but now that the project's coming to a close, we'll be able to start working on that. Thank you. Thank you, Julie, that's uh, fantastic. Okay, so we've got no other questions um, come through at the moment. Um, so we will go backwards in the programme for this evening. And um, I invite uh, Evelyn McLoon and I think we've got Alex to come to join us as well. So uh, Evelyn, across to you. So thanks very much. Um, so just, uh, first of all, it was fortuitous that Claire went ahead of us because actually it's really useful that she's explained the modes of inheritance leading into the next talk. So that was not planned, but very useful. Um, Alex is the pediatric registrar working with me at the moment, and he's also been involved in the pediatric genetics work we've been doing with uh, Dr. McKee on the panel. So um, I let Alex uh, talk through the presentation. If Alex can share a screen now, please. Yeah, we'll do now. Give me a second. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Could everybody see the screen okay? Matthew, yeah, we've got that, Alex. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, okay, so let me just minimize this. Okay, so uh, yeah, my name is Alex Young, and as Ms. McLoon um, mentioned, I'm a specialty trainee currently based in the Royal Victoria Hospital. Um, I'm given the title of the talk, which is to give you an update on genotyping in inherited retinal disorders in the Northern Irish pediatric population. And I will go through this talk using a few case examples that has been seen in Ms. McLuhan's clinic or patients that were in our 100K whole genome sequencing project, 
which uh, was led by Ms. McClume and Dr. McKee, who is also one of the panelists uh, today. So um, let me just stop. So what is inherited retinal dystrophies? Uh, just a bit of introduction. So it is a heterogeneous group of conditions that is mostly affects the retina and causes uh, progressive visual impairment, and it has multiple modes of inheritance. Now, uh, back in the days when genetic testing is still not as common as it is now, uh, clinicians tend to classify inherited retinal dystrophies based on their mode of inheritance and how they look like clinically. And slowly people realize actually they are quite variable from one person to the other. And genetic testing later on helped us confirm that. And we have identified almost 300 genes that can cause uh, an inherited retinal disease. And even among two unrelated individuals with the same gene affected, the clinical picture can be slightly different as well in terms of the age of onset, how severe the condition affects them, what are the clinical features and how quickly the disease progress. Uh, this is just a graph to illustrate how many genes are actually causing inherited retinal dystrophy and why you know, it can cause a very variable clinical picture. And the red graph just shows how many genes we have identified. And the blue graph just shows how many have been mapped but we have not been able to identify the exact gene yet. We know the location roughly, but we just don't know the exact gene yet. So um, before I go on ahead with my um, cases, I just wanted to orientate us ourselves with how a normal eye looks like. So the picture, the picture on the far left is actually a color photograph of how a normal retina looks like. And then the picture in the middle is just another sort of photography uh, modality uh, to, to look at the retina in a, in a different way, and that's called autofluorescence. And the image on the far right is an OCT or optical coherence tomography of the macula. And that just shows a cross section of the macula. And that lets us see, you know, the anatomical structure of the macula itself and whether there are any pathology in the macula. So uh, first of all, I just wanted to demonstrate, uh, you know, give you an example how even with the same affected gene, it can present differently. So um, I'll use an example of a best disease or best vitelliform macular dystrophy. And for those of you who are not aware, this is probably the second most common macular dystrophy after Stargardt disease. And this is a case of a 14 year old girl who just went to a routine optician check, no symptoms at all. And a photo incident uh, photograph picked up an incidental finding. And I've highlighted it here in the green box, which is a little yellow with teleform like mm -hmm. lesion right at the macula. And you can actually see it better on the autofluorescence uh, imaging where it shows up as a bright uh, white roundish lesion. And if we did an OCT scan through it, you can see that the yellow vitelliform material is actually right at the central macula accumulating below the, the photoreceptors. And she underwent genetic testing and it was found that she has autosomal dominant uh, best one gene mutation. 
And this is another case with an autosomal dominant BAS1 gene mutation. And immediately you can appreciate that the, the, um, the findings in the retina is very different from what we saw just now. Uh, this is a 68-year-old lady, again, no symptoms, uh, came to the eye clinic for an entirely different problem and was noted incidentally to have a, a lesion at the macula. And you probably not be able to see much uh, quite clearly on the color picture, but on the autofluorescence imaging, you can see this little sort of spoke wheel-like radial pattern of a lesion in the macula. And if we do an OCT scan through it, and again, sort of slightly different presentation than the one we had before, but genetic testing shows it is still an autosomal dominant one, best one gene mutation, but a different type of mutation. And that's normally usually uh, associated with a later onset milder disease. Uh, what about if we have two faulty copies of the best one gene? Again, it presents very differently from our two previous cases. Uh, this is a 40 year old gentleman who has been wearing very short, uh, long-sighted glasses since the age of four and have been having vision trouble since he was about a teenager. And he has had two previous laser procedures for a condition called angle closure glaucoma. And this is a uh, condition where if it's not treated, it can lead to blindness quite quickly. Um, looking at his uh, retina here on the color photograph label A, you can see that there are multiple scattered yellowish sort of vitelliform lesions throughout the macula and also outside of it as well. And on the autofluorescence imaging, again, you can see multiple scattered bright and mixture of a bright and black dots around the macula and outside of it. And if you look at the OCT scan, this is very much different from what we have seen before. It, has, it mainly shows that there is scarring at the macula and it goes along with the vision that this patient has. He doesn't have very good vision uh, when he was last seen in clinic. And this sort of couple of cases really showed the benefits of genetic testing and you know how genetic testing is performed is we normally take a blood sample, we analyze it, you know, we, we analyze the whole DNA. There are about 3 billion sort of letter combination in the DNA. And from that 3 billion letters, we're trying to find a mistake or an error that could lead to the clinical features that the patient is experiencing. So it's really like finding a needle in a haystack, but uh, scientists over time have developed sort of bioinformatics software that can help them um, make the process a bit quicker. So uh, I've, Claire has sort of alluded in her previous talk, but I just wanted to, again, re-emphasize the benefits of genetic testing. Why do we do it? Well, we can confirm the diagnosis and that may influence further clinical management, which again, I will use a case example to illustrate that. We can determine the prognosis. We can provide more accurate family counseling and assist in family planning by knowing the mode of inheritance. Um, with a, a genetic diagnosis, patients can, are eligible to participate in research mm -hmm. or clinical trials that may aid in finding treatment for a form of inherited retinal dystrophies, or just maybe can help in discovery of new genes. Um, so the first case I want to uh, present is actually a 13-year-old a patient that presented, again, 
is an incidental finding from just a routine optician check. Um, she present, uh, the optician did a camera photograph and found these sort of black lesions at the peripheral retina. Um, so there are very um, quite abundant black, black pigmentations in the peripheral retina with sort of narrowing of the retinal vessels as well. And these are quite typical features of uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And if we did an OCT scan through the macula, uh, her macula shows these those cystic lesions in the macula, which are which you can normally find in patients with RP. And again, I'm just using the image at the right to orientate ourselves what a normal macula should look like. Now, despite this, her vision is still good at 6.6. And on further um, questioning, she has mentioned that she has been experiencing problems navigating at dusk or nighttime when she was playing outside. And we did further investigations, um, namely electrophysiology, and that shows a pattern consistent with RP. She has no family history. She has an older sister with no visual problems. And she was started on a, uh, an eye drop to help to see if we can settle the cysts in the macula. And she underwent genetic testing and a mutation in the PE6B gene have been found. So how did genetic testing help this patient? Well, first of all, it confirms the diagnosis of RP because the PDE6B gene is known to cause autosomal recessive retinitis pigmentosa. And we also know from previous literature that PDE6B gene doesn't cause any other systemic problems. So this is not a syndromic retinitis pigmentosa. It helps with family counseling. And also this patient may be eligible to participate in clinical trials when she becomes older because there is currently a trial going on in France looking at gene replacement therapy for PDE6B-associated RP, but it is only for uh, patients who are above 18. A second case, uh, which is very interesting, is a 13-year-old uh, girl. She was referred at age six with sort of progressive blurring of vision and some behavioral issues, but um, parents say there's no concerns with regards to development. Only family history is that dad suffers from uh, epilepsy or seizures as well, but uh, no other family history of note. And vision in the initial assessment was quite poor at 648, which is very far below the driving standards. Uh, these are sort of images of her um, retina. So on the color photos, it may not be very obvious, but when we look at the autofluorescence, I'll highlight it here. You can see a little sort of whitish circle right outside the fovea with some whitish circle in the fovea itself. And I've just highlighted it with this um, red mark there, and it actually looks like a bullseye. So this is actually a bullseye maculopathy and if we did an OCT scan through it, the, um, the central macula is actually thin. The photoreceptor layer is actually thin and very different compared to a normal macula. So she underwent electrophysiology again, and this time it shows that it is a cone rod dystrophy, meaning it's a retinal dystrophy that predominantly affects the cone photoreceptors 
And these are photoreceptors that are mainly responsible for central vision and color, but uh, it also affects the rod photoreceptors to a lesser degree. Um, at that point, she was tested for mutations in the ABCA4 gene for Stargardt disease. And the reason for doing that was because in the UK setting, the most common cause of cone rod dystrophy is uh, Stargardt disease, and that was negative. Um, so she was you know, followed up in the low vision clinic for years just to optimize her vision. And two years later, she was admitted for prolonged seizures. And Ms. McClune was incidentally copied into the discharge letter. And it transpired that she has been experiencing seizure episodes since she was seven years old. And this is when sort of we can put two and two together. And she performed a genetic testing to look for Batten disease. And lo and behold, she came back positive for the gene mutation for Batten disease. And briefly about Batten disease, it is a, a rare neurological condition that typically presents in childhood. And patients are usually healthy and develop normally initially, but then over time, they suffer progressive degeneration of their central nervous system. So they suffer mobility issues, swallowing, eating issues, loss of speech, cognitive issues, seizures, progressive visual loss. It is quite a sad sort of condition to look after. And they also suffer sort of neurodevelopmental or behavioral changes as well. So how did genetic testing help this patient or how maybe earlier genetic testing helped this patient? Well, you can argue that well, detection of this uh, Batten disease gene would have triggered an earlier pediatric pediatric assessment, and maybe that would have improved her quality of life a little. But uh, at the same time, by doing this genetic testing, we have helped family counseling, but more importantly, we have achieved an earlier diagnosis in her younger sister, who was referred at around age five or six with similar problems with her vision as well. So uh, just briefly talking about the 100K Genomes Project that we were involved in, uh, this was a government-led project that was announced back in 2012. Uh, it was, a, the government wanted to sequence 100,000 whole DNA from NHS patients, and they mainly focus on patients with rare diseases and cancers. And the objectives of this project was to set up a genomic medicine service that is available to NHS, and to also help uh, promote new scientific discovery and medical insights and at the same time, try and kickstart the UK genomics industry. This, the, this scale of a project has never been tried anywhere else in the world. So the NHS was trying to pioneer genomic medicine service on a large scale. Um, so we performed or we recruited patients for our NIFAN study, study, which is an acronym for Northern Ireland Foveal Hypoplasia and Nystagmus. And for those who are not sure what nystagmus means, uh, here's a picture demonstrating that. So it's just a wobbling of the eye. Um, and we recruit children with atypical nystagmus, which we suspect is due to an inherited cause. And what I mean by atypical nystagmus, I will explain it in the following mm -hmm. slides. And we recruit these patients for whole genome sequencing. Um, briefly about childhood nystagmus, um, causes of nystagmus can be broken down simply into two main causes. So the nystagmus can be due to a neurological cause. So something may not 
you know, it may be a pathology in the nervous system, or it may be because of reduced vision in the eye for various reasons. So uh, a few of the more common causes of childhood nystagmus or ocular causes of childhood nystagmus are albinism, aniridia, coloboma, cataract, inherited retinal dystrophies, or idiopathic. And what I mean by idiopathic is if you've done all the investigations, but you can't find a cause, that's an idiopathic nystagmus. So here are some uh, pictures of the common causes of ocular, uh, ocular causes of childhood nystagmus. So the picture of a little boy here is a boy with al albinism. So he has the typical really pale skin, blonde hair, blue eyes picture. And these two pictures here are of aniridia. The aniridia eye would be the one labeled in A. And compare and contrast it with a normal eye. You can see the iris here, but there is no iris in the picture in A. Looking down here, this is a picture of a coloboma, which looks like a keyhole-shaped iris in both eyes. And the final picture on the lower right corner is of a congenital cataract. So we mainly focus on patients who have some features of albinism, but not all of them. So that's what we meant by atypical albinism. So, you know, the typical features or the eye features of someone with albinism are illustrated here. So first of all, their iris tends to have what we call iris transillumination. Now, with the normal iris, because we are well pigmented, the red reflex of the retina shouldn't come back through when you're examining it. But because patients with albinism has no or minimal pigments, the red reflex can shine through quite easily. And again, albinoid uh, fundus or albinoid retina looks quite pale compared to a normal uh, retina. And if we do an OCT scan through the macula, we cannot find the fovea, which is this central dip in a normal individual. But in albinism, you may not find a fovea or an underdeveloped fovea. And this is what we mean by foveal hypoplasia. So the knife-arm cohort, we really recruited patients who didn't really fit into that sort of particular box. So these are patients who have either ocular albinism, so they have features of albinism restricted to the eye, but they have, they have very well pigmented skin, very dark colored hair, or we have patients who have only foveal hypoplasia, but no other features. So no electrophysiologic evidence or other evidence albinism, or we may have patients who have an idiopathic nystagmus, i.e. you've done all the tests and you can't find any abnormalities. So we have here patient C who is a 15. She was referred at the age of six due to a failed routine sort of screening site test when she was entering P1. And she was complaining of a bit of light sensitivity. She is a myope, so she is fairly short-sighted. And when ex on examination, she has only very mild iris transillumination in the right eye, but more importantly, she didn't have any nystagmus. She has brown hair, blue iris, relatively pale fundus. And to complicate things, mom's half-sister and cousin are typical albinos with the pale skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. And this is the photograph, um, the retinal photograph of her, of her. And you can see the retina is not exactly very pale compared to what I've shown you before. 
And autofluorescence imaging didn't really show any abnormalities either. And OCT of the macula on the left eye, you can definitely tell there is no fovea hyperplasia and the right eye as well. So it doesn't really fit into our alb albinism sort of box in there. So she was diagnosed with ocular albinism, you know, with the family history, some features of albinism. Uh, vision has always remained suboptimal, but has always been stable. She was recruited into our 100K project and sequencing have shown that she is actually has a mutation for the TRPM1 gene, which causes congenital stationary night blindness. And mom's half-sister was recruited as part of the project as well. And she was confirmed to have albinism with a mutation in a very common albino gene, the TYR gene. And this is quite interesting. So we have two genetic conditions running in the same family. And how did genetic testing help this patient? Well, first of all, her diagnosis was revised. She became from ocular albinism. She was diagnosed as congenital stationary night blindness. And on further questioning, mom has always meant, mom has mentioned that she has always been having difficulty navigating in the dark, especially when in the cinema, she can't really judge the steps when trying to find her seat or walking to a seat. Um, she is myopic, which again, fits along with a TRPM1 mutation. And she has slightly reduced, or she has reduced vision, but has always remained stable. And this sort of gave her a accurate counseling, family counseling and prognosis. And she may be eligible to participate in further research studies if there are ever trials on TRPM1 related retinal dystrophies. Um, Alex, sorry, in the interest of time, this is running on. Do you want to just go on to the gene vision couple of slides at the end? Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. No, thank you. Sorry. Um, so let me just skip these slides here. Um, so if you're interested to find more information about retinal dystrophy or any inherited disorders, um, I can direct you to the Gene Vision website, which is um, a project that I did on my year out of program uh, in UCL. And this was a project that was jointly supported by Retina UK and NIHR Moorfields. And this is an open source website that you can find information on about various inherited uh, disorders. And I was very fortunate to work with uh, two supervisors. One is Professor Musaji, who's a uh, molecular ophthalmologist in UCL, Gosh, and Moorfields, and Mr. Peter Thomas, who's a consultant ophthalmologist in Moorfields, and his interest is in digital medicine. And the content uh, is really, you have two versions for each condition, one aimed at healthcare professionals and the other one aimed at patients, relatives, or general public. So the, there will be less technical terms used there, but you can interchange them quite easily. And every page, there's a quick links, like a table of contents, which you can navigate the page quite easily without having to scroll through. Um, on the general public page, we focus on things that what we think the public or the patients want to know, such as symptoms, current research, advice, various charities, uh, both condition-specific and umbrella charities. And if possible, we normally attach a video of a patient or a family talking about their experience living with that particular condition. Um, just a bit about the research. So we have a research section, which you can browse through. It talks through about certain current therapies that are under research, how to search for clinical trials, 
And you can also register your interests if you, if you want to participate in any research studies. And we update this website annually unless there's a landmark trials or findings being published in between. Uh, I'm just going through the video of this uh, website briefly. I will, this is about a two minute video, but I will stop halfway through. Uh, this is the homepage of the website. And the, uh, there are multiple tabs there. And this is just a research tab from what we've talked about just now. And you have a search box here. You can search for any condition or condition of interest that you want. And a list of uh, results will come up with the term that you have searched for. Um, I did this video for a recent talk for Aniridia uh, UK. So that's why I'm searching for Aniridia here. But all pages are laid out uh, similarly. So you have a quick links here where you can click on a section of your interests. And again, it will just jump down to the section of interest for you here. And if you want to go back to the main sort of table of contents, you can easily quick click on there and you can click on another section here. So um, I'm just gonna fast forward it. So again, sort of, you know, I just wanted to show that you can interchange quickly to sort of the professional page. And I'm gonna fast forward here in the interest of time. And I'm just gonna show you the chatbot feature which we recently added. So this is to help accessibility of the website for any site impaired users. And you can use it more or less like talking to a person, like what is Aniridia, what is retinitis pigmentosa? So here's just an illustration and it will reply you with an explanation and you can keep on going and it will just keep going you know, as such. And you can improve the sort of um, accessibility by improving the font or changing contrast. And this is actually a um, compatible with Amazon Alexa. So you can use it as a voice command as well, instead of typing. And we are working to try and make it compatible with other sort of uh, voice command uh, systems such as Siri or Google Assistant. So I will skip the rest of the slide. Uh, feel free to explore it later. Um, if there's any feedback or queries, we always welcome. And there's a contact us section page in the website. Um, I would like to end my presentation with this picture to show that there's light at the end of the tunnel for inherited retinal disease, because with the recent approval of Luxterna and with many, many other trials ongoing for re gene replacement, trials going for other inherited retinal disease, I think a treatment for certain forms of inherited retinal disease is in the horizon. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Alex. Um, good to see you again. That was a fantastic presentation. Thank you. Um, I've also got down in this section for, um, for Evan and, and Shane. Is there anything more that you guys are looking to add to this section? Um, no, I mean, other than to say that, you know, it's been fantastic to be able to work with Shane and the group in with the Hundred Genome Project. Just Unfortunately, our biggest problem at the moment, as Shane can testify to, is um, now that the project is over, uh, we don't have funding or access to this level of genetic testing, particularly in the paediatric world, is, I think, an essential part of managing these children. 
sadly, as with many things in the NHS at the moment, the biggest problem we have is uh, lack of funding. So I'm sure Shane can, can say yeah. more about that. I think I would back that up as well, Evelyn. Thank you. Um, thank you, Alex. The, it has been a, a great experience, actually, for us in genetics and clinical genetics, where I wouldn't say a slightly rarefied medical specialty, but it's been great to actually interact with our colleagues in ophthalmology and also with many of the patients that we've been uh, seeing and dealing with as well and to be able to get some of these diagnoses using this new technology. And as Alex mentions, it, uh, it's a big challenge then to take it to the next step as to what's going to be the treatment or the management of the families. And also, as Claire had mentioned previously, and Julie had said as well, you know, the recurrence element in the families and what actually happens if you realize that this is a genetic condition and there's potential for other people to be affected with that. As Evelyn mentioned, getting the diagnosis, um, we've been able to use the, the whole genome sequencing through the 100,000 Genomes Project, and that's been great. And in England at the moment, there is a move towards establishing whole genome sequencing as part of the routine standards of genetic care for patients with retinal disorders and various different conditions, lots of genetic conditions. And that hasn't been commissioned in Northern Ireland at this stage. We are, I would like to sort of end on a bit of a positive note on this, but we are in discussions with our Department of Health and also with the commissioners and with various other groups and bodies to find out what is actually the best testing methodology for our patients here. And um, we know that working together as clinicians working together with patients, we know that brings a lot of value. Um, but are there particular ways that we can use the testing that can deliver those results as quickly as we possibly can? So for those of you maybe who are undergoing genetic testing at the moment, there is a bit of a backlog in terms of the, the timing for these. Some of the gene tests that we would have had available to us previously aren't available right now. We very much hope that's a temporary position and that we'll be able to get on to things because we do want to get those say uh, those new genetic diagnoses so for example if uh, we find someone who's eligible for Luxterna or whatever the next therapies are going to be and I think that's one thing we can guarantee there are going to be new therapies for some of these disorders but not all of them but the, the future is looking interesting as Alex says yeah light at the end of the tunnel but uh, we don't really know how long the tunnel is going to be. Fantastic thanks Shane. Um, okay, so we've got um, we've got one question which has come in, and we've also got somebody who's um, been sat patiently with their hand up for a little while. Um, so I'll go with the question we've got here first. Um, so open to to any that want to answer. Uh, so the question is: Given that there are so many genes which can cause RP, is it fair to infer that any potential treatment must be tailored to that specific faulty gene? Also, once the RP is severely advanced, is there any realistic possibility of the condition being reversed if the specific gene has been identified? Can I maybe take the, the first bit of that from a genetic point of view? And obviously my ophthalmological colleagues will jump in as well, but uh, I think it is fair to say that if we're going to be going down the line of gene therapy, it is it is pretty much going to be the case for a lot of these conditions that if we know that we need to know the actual gene and then the therapy will be tailored towards that gene because we're looking for a specific fault that uh, that we're trying to address with the, the gene. I would like, I was just thinking there, I would need to pick up on one of the things that Alex had said in one of his earlier slides. There was a picture of all these letters of DNA in green and then there was like a red error coming down the middle of it. The problem with doing genetic analysis for a, just for folks who are, are listening in, if they don't know how to do this, is that uh, there aren't any red letters saying error. All the letters mm -hmm. look the same green. It's just ACGT all over the place, three billion of them. And uh, it is, it definitely is, it's a very difficult thing. It is like looking in a for a needle in a haystack and you know that the haystack is somewhere in Donegal. 
it's that level of problem. But mm -hmm. uh, but yes, I think it, it is. It has to be specific. So that's why we want to get that specific diagnosis at a specific gene level. Fantastic. Um, Thank you. Um, and in terms of, I think the second part of the question, maybe if I could jump in there. Um, so if, if, if someone has severely advanced RP, is there any realistic prospect of improvement? And obviously the earlier the disease and the, the treatment started, then you know there's a better chance of certainly stabilizing and improving things. But we have seen some improvements in the electoral, electrical test after uh, some of the therapies and certainly in the Luxterna for the, the, the baby RP, as I call it, there, ha, there does seem to be an improvement. So it depends on how much, res, you know, how the retina looks and, and how the ret, how healthy it is whenever the treatment is put in. Um, so it, it, it depends very much uh, on that as well, which is probably why it works well in the babies, because mm -hmm. although they're visually impaired, the retinal structure, the cells are still quite good. So it, it depends very much on the retina. Don't know if Evelyn wants to comment or yeah, no, exactly. This is why the genetics and pediatrics is very exciting because as we know, these new um, treatments are likely to come on online available to us over time. I think it'd be really important to have identified the younger patients with it because it's most likely to be a benefit to them clinically. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Fantastic. So we've got no other questions. And in, in fact, the hand that we had up um, has gone down. So if anybody does, um, again, want to pop their hand up to ask a question, then please feel free to do so. Um, Alex, Evelyn, Shane, thank you ever so much for that um, that session. That was, uh, that was really quite insightful. Um, so I would like next to um, introduce to you my colleague, Denise, Denise Rawdon, who is one of our information support managers. Um, and did an awful lot of work um, over the last 12 months, um, along with the team at Retina UK um, and others to um, pull together a resource called Unlock Genetics. So Denise, over to you. Thanks very much, Matt. Can you hear me okay? We can indeed. That's great. Well, as you've heard so far today um, from our eminent speakers, uh, around 280 um, genes have actually been identified uh, that actually cause um, inherited retinal dystrophies. We know there are still a number out there that need to be identified, but this means that around two thirds of our community are able to find out which gene is responsible for their sight loss. Now in 2019, we carried out our Retina UK sight loss survey and of the thousand people who responded, about 43% told us that they were not aware of genetic testing or that they were aware of it, they'd heard of it, but they didn't think it was available to them. And some members of our community who told us that they had received a genetic diagnosis actually provided the general name of their condition or an inheritance pattern, thinking that that was actually their genetic diagnosis. And following calls to our helpline and discussions with our community at events that we attended, we already believed that there was a lack of awareness and understanding and that many people were really struggling to find out more information about genetic testing and counselling that they could relate to and understand. And the results of our survey really confirmed this. So Retina UK, we're committed to providing easily accessible, clear balanced information to help you to understand what's available to you 
and explain the benefits and limitations. Now, as a charity, it's not our place to tell everyone that they should get a test. What we want to do is provide good, easy to understand information to help you to make informed decisions as to whether genetic testing and genetic counselling is right for you and your family. So we produced a suite of information. And whilst the information that I'm going to show you today is online, we also have all of the information available in audio, both on CD or memory stick, and it's also available in large print. We're really grateful to the members of our community who supported us in testing the accessibility of the website, using lots of different devices and software, and also helped us to shape the content that is actually available. We also had great help and advice from three healthcare professionals who specialize in genetics to ensure that the information was all accurate. So what I'm gonna do now is just share my screen and show you the, um, show you the website that we actually produced. So it's a section on, sorry, just bear with me one moment. Just make sure I can. Matt, can you confirm that you can see the screen? Excellent. Okay, so this is our Unlock Genetics website. It is actually available directly from retinauk.org.uk slash genetics if you go in and have a look there but please don't worry because we will be following up today with uh, this evening with an email and we'll make sure that the link is provided in there so for those of you that can actually see the screen we have the main home screen that has the um the words unlock genetics discover your choices and an, an image next to it of a lock and a key Along the top of the screen, there is, um, th there's a menu that you can choose to go in uh, various places. Um, so you can use that as the, as the bar to navigate around the screen, or you can simply scroll down the screen through each of the sections. As you scroll down, oh, first, first and foremost, let me tell you about the accessibility key, uh, keys along uh, just along the bottom here. Um, you do have the option of changing the contrast on the screen and also to increase the text size, which I'll do just now to make it a little bit easier for anybody who is able to see the screen. So you can scroll down the screen, which links to different sections. So the first section that you will come to is why genes matter. It will give you a little paragraph and then it will allow a button to click to find out more. All of the information uh, covers various topics. So it covers genetics itself. So an explanation of genes and genetic code, um, how these can sometimes go wrong and cause sight loss. There's a section on inheritance patterns. And as Claire um, very clearly explained earlier, the different types of inheritance patterns and um, how uh, the, the um, mutated genes can actually be passed down through families and what the risks to children are. Um, it covers genetic testing, uh, what testing actually entails and the potential benefits and limitations of genetic tests. It covers genetic counselling and explains a little bit about that service and how it can support families. And there's also information on how to actually get a referral. Some information for professionals who perhaps we've been told in the past 
haven't really understood the benefits when you've asked GPs or or um, lay lay professionals to to um, refer for genetic testing. They haven't really understood the benefits to you as a family. And there's a section on there that actually explains to them why they should be considering that referral. The information is actually provided in layers. We wanted to ensure that given it's such a massive topic and uh, for some people, especially early on in the diagnosis, it's a topic that perhaps is really, really overwhelming. We wanted to provide people with clear information that's in bite-sized chunks and you can choose how in depth you actually go with each of that, that, those sections of information. So on the main screen here, I'm on the section of why genes matter. I've scrolled down the homepage and it gives a paragraph that just gives very basic information. If I decided at that point I wanted to know a little bit more, there's a button just underneath the paragraph that says find out more. And if I click on that, more detail. And of course my screen decides it doesn't want to play. But clicking on that button will actually provide some additional layer of information and it'll provide a couple of paragraphs giving some slightly more detailed information, but nothing too onerous. If you decide that actually you're sat down with a cup of tea and you really want to delve into the ins and outs of the, that area, so why genes matter, should matter to you and your family, you have an option to click on more detailed information. And this will really bring up the in-depth information still in a clear, easily, easy to understand um, manner, but it'll give a lot more detail. If you decide that actually that's a little bit overwhelming, you can either just click back on the home page or simplify information and it will take you back. Each of these sections along the top of the website have have options to go in and create and look at further information. So Claire talked earlier about inheritance patterns. If you hover over the inheritance pattern title at the top, it will bring up a list of the different inheritance patterns. And you can go in and select more information that will give you details on each one. It can talk about genetic testing and explain about searching for the cause of the genetic test. We also have some, um, some information, some um, podcasts that you can actually listen to from some members of our community that have actually listened uh, and explained what is actually involved. We also have um, a conversation with Georgina Hall, who's a consultant genetic counsellor at the Manchester uh, Genetic Centre. And she talks about why you might want to consider getting a genetic test. Each section follows the same design, whichever one you're going into. But also along the main screen, if you hover over Unlock Genetics Home, there's a section that has frequently asked questions. This is something that we'll be adding to over time. We also have a section called Your Stories. So if you decide you've had enough of reading and you want something a little bit more personalised, 
There are a number of stories on there and interviews with members of our community that talk about their experiences of going through genetic testing and genetic counselling. Like I mentioned, the section for professionals, if you decided that you were going to go and speak to your GP and you wanted to explain to them why they should provide a referral, by going to the for professionals page, you can actually choose to print that page and actually take it with you to your GP. And that will provide them with the benefits that of the reasons that they should actually do the referral for you, as well as the limitations with um, genetic testing. So I hope that just gives you a, a little flavor of what our website actually looks like. Being diagnosed with an inherited retinal condition often means that there's a great deal of uncertainty ahead but there are some areas that people can actually have some control over. And I think being informed about and making choices about whether you want to learn more about your condition is one of those things. The chance of getting a firm diagnosis to better understand your inheritance pattern, the chances of future generations being affected, these are choices that everybody living with inherited retinal dystrophies can make. As Alex mentioned before, of the, the reasons, the benefits that you can have, sort of whether to decide um, if, if there are clinical trials happening, whether that's something that you want to be involved in in the future. These are choices that you can make, and we want to let you know as much about the subject area as possible in a way that you can understand. So please do take some time to explore the website, read the information, and ask lots of questions. If you can't see something clearly explained on there, please do get in touch with us via the feedback form. This information is relevant for everyone living with an inherited retinal dystrophy, and it doesn't matter whether you were diagnosed recently or that actually happened many, many years ago. We want to make sure that, that, that you understand your gene mutation and you have answers to any of the questions that, you, that are actually raised through that. Um, process. If you do have any questions about Unlock Genetics or generally about your condition, we do have a helpline that is there available to support you. The team on our helpline, uh, they're all volunteers that work with us. They're not medically trained, but they are all people that are living with a similar condition. They all have an inherited uh, retinal dystrophy. They have personal experience of genetic testing and genetic counselling as well as a lot of other lived experience. And we really do value your feedback. So we've done a lot of research and planning to get to this stage, but if you've got any thoughts or comments about the website, about the information, please do let us know. And remember, you can always choose to print the information from our website, or you can contact our office and they will provide you the information in either audio or in large print, if that's your preferred choice. If you do know other people that are living with these conditions, please do let them know about the website as well to provide them with the information. Thank you. Denise, thank you. Um, fantastic, as always. Um, so the Retina UK um, Unlock Genetics um, site is uh, 
available for, for anybody to use uh, and is uh, obviously complementary to Gene Vision as Alex was talking about before. So just the websites for, for the two of those. So you can access Unlock Genetics, um, which is www.retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics. And the Gene Vision website is www.gene.vision. So both of those are available for, uh, for anybody to use. So we've got no questions that have come up from that session at the moment. Um, so we'll move swiftly on the agenda as we're uh, progressing through the evening. So I'd next like to um, invite Laura Cushley along to talk about navigating our towns and cities with sight loss. So Laura, over to you. Thank you very much, Matthew. Can you hear me okay? And you can see my slides, I hope. We can, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Perfect. So um, my name is Laura Cushley. I'm a PhD student um, in the Centre for Public Health at Queen's University. Um, and I'm going to be talking about um, navigating towns and cities um, with sight loss. So um, why did the study start? So there was a very small study um, that happened for about six months when I was an undergraduate um, student at Queen's. Um, I was studying environmental planning and um, we had to sort of have a very short research topic um, and at the time I was working in the ophthalmology department um, and I decided that it was something that I was very interested in um, as I'd heard a lot of people talking about how they had had problems walking around or how difficult it was to get to clinic etc because of different things um, and I also had a good friend with Stargardt who um, was discussing these problems as well. So um, although a lot of you will probably know why this is so important, um, I'm just going to give you a few statistics. Um, so 250 people per day start to lose their sight. Um, 4.1 million people will be affected by sight loss in the UK by 2050. Um, and 28% of people with sight loss state that they rarely go out of their houses. Um, and that was um, pre-COVID um, as well. So what are the issues? So um, from discussions with people with sight loss and also from previous studies that were um, conducted, um, we found out that some of the most prominent issues in our towns and cities were things like cars, car, parked cars on pavements, street clutter, so things like benches um, and uh, bus shelters, etc., um, advertisement boards, um, unfinished and damaged paving, shared space where people um, and cars are in the same um, space without any sort of delineation or any um, sort of difference between um, the road and the footpath, um, tree roots and which can often cause uneven paving, um, bollards, um, street cafes and um, alfresco dining, so outdoor dining areas um, on the streets. So the initial study that we conducted um, was again for the short six months. So we did focus groups with professionals. So that was both with um, ophthalmic professionals and also um, planners and architects, charities and people from the visually impaired community. And um, we also distributed questionnaires um, to people with a visual impairment and we got 108 responses over the two months. So this was um, this questionnaire asked about the problems that people with sight loss face and potential things that could help them and um, some of their own opinions on, on what um, they personally struggled with. So what did the questionnaire sort of um, give us? So 80% of people who answered the questionnaire agreed that their sight loss affects them going out into towns and cities. Um, 80% thought that towns and cities were very difficult to navigate around. 
over 60% were not confident in moving around towns and cities. And over 80% agreed that some of those um, issues from previous studies, street clutter, cars parked on pavement, shared space and poor lighting were a problem. And 85% um, agreed that going out into towns and cities um, gave them feelings of fear and anxiety. Some of the other comments um, from the questionnaires were that greater community support was needed. Um, also that perhaps more um, knowledge of, of, in the general public of sight loss and how there is such a big spectrum of it. Not having to rely on um, their family. Bollards were something that was mentioned quite a lot. A lot of people said that they had bruises everywhere from walking into them. Um, gaps in the building line are a hazard. So this um, is for people who use the sort of building line as a safety, as a safety um, mechanism that they're not close to the road. Um, loud noise like roadworks or music can also be a problem. Um, and cyclists were also brought up quite a lot. So um, the fact that they're quite silent um, and maybe that they should use um, bells and stuff to, to warn people they're coming. So um, we decided to look up what was happening in the rest of the world, because there are some good examples of things that cities are doing um, to help people with sight loss and um, navigate better. So the first one we found um, was subway systems in Toronto, Canada. So this was the sort of thing that was happening um, at the time that we were doing the research. So um, they provide tactile um, sort of marking on the bottom of um, the subway systems, which People with um, sight loss can feel with their feet, but also um, can feel with the cane. Um, they also ensured that there was blister paving um, throughout um, subway systems. And this was both on the platform and um, at the edge of the train. Um, some technology that was um, being trialed at the time was a transport technology. So there was a watch, um, which is called the Metro Dot. And in Japan, what happened is the person with visual impairment put the watch on, they um, scanned the metro dot as they went in to the station, they spoke to the watch to tell them where they wanted to get off. And this watch um, vibrated when they um, got to the destination where they were either to get off or where they were transferring to another train. Um, some other things were braille and tactile signs, which are quite common in Australia. So these um, provide, uh, they're sort of at um, arm height, so people could use either the braille or they could use the actual letters of each um, name of the street as raised as well. And um, one of them even has an arrow of, of which direction um, this is going. 3D and tactile mapping. So um, this is in Japan and Finland, so people could actually feel where they were and what sort of routes they could take from that. And um, in the past couple of months, I actually found one of these in uh, just outside Lisburn, so in between Lisburn and Belfast, um, in uh, Albert Elgue Park um, in Ballyskay, which was really interesting. Um, also continuous tactile paving, which um, is quite common in Japan and in Greece. So this allows um, people with sight loss to follow this tactile paving with their feet or with their cane, um, and it provides um, them reassurance that perhaps they won't um, walk into sort of street colour, anything like that. Um, and at each different um, intersection, there's also a different change in tactile paving to um, allow you to be able to um, understand that. So what's happening now? So um, as I'm a PhD student, so what we wanted to do is bring this into um, more clinical and, um, and um, also the um, environmental side 
with walking around towns and cities. So the current study we're doing is um, people with diabetes and people with retinitis pigmentosa. Um, it involves a walk around the university area and then we do some visual testing and some imaging in the clinical research facility. Um, I think there's maybe some people who um, have already participated in this study on here. So um, I've just left the website there and email in case anybody wants any information on that. Um, so some results from that, um, we don't have any of the clinical results yet, but some of the pictures that we've sort of taken um, from around the walkarounds of the university area. So um, the first picture that I'm going to show you is of a street. Um, there is a telephone box on the street um, and there's also some roadworks bollards which are, are um, cordoning off an area where they're working on the street. And one of our participants said this is a particular problem because um, it's not, it's not always there. It's not known to them. If they're walking the street normally, that wouldn't be there and it would be a hazard to them. Um, the next one is of a um, cafe on the street. So basically what's outside the cafe is five advertisement boards for breakfast deals, burgers, whatever they have on offer. And they're at different um, sort of areas of the pavement, which can cause um, a problem for people with visual impairment. And the participant who pointed this, I said this would be particularly difficult to navigate because you get you get past one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. And um, there's also a lot of um, uneven paving here, which can cause a trip hazard. Um, another one um, was a big massive skip in the middle of the pavement. Um, which is not very helpful to anybody. Um, and also behind this skip, there was a lot of rubbish. So there was actually broken bottles and, and things around this skip as well, which is um, obviously a big hazard um, for anybody. As we come out of the COVID pandemic, um, restrictions lifted. Everybody had to go outside. Everybody was able to eat outside, but that meant that councils were giving everybody licenses to do street cafes, which, um, Understandably, we needed to get the economy up and running, but um, there wasn't much guidance given on how to make these safe for people um, with any disability, but also especially for people with a visual impairment. So this is a street cafe that um, they've put up recently in Botanic um, Street. And this is basically what it is, is there's, there's tables and there's umbrellas, which are very sort of structured. Um, however, they've also drilled in some bollards in the middle of the street, which makes it very, very narrow. Um, and they've also put some nice black ropes up in between the bollards, which anybody could fall over. And the participant um, who found this quite difficult said that if he was walking on his own and he had a cane, he wouldn't actually hit that and he would just go straight into the um, into the, the sort of cordons, um, which caused a big problem. So um, that's basically me. So thank you for listening and any questions at all. Laura, thank you very much. Um, I think we can all share experiences of uh, coming across these uh, bollards and um, enables and things, skips, and goodness knows what else on um, on pavements and the and the kind of frustrations that they cause. Um, so I've got no direct questions that have come through at the moment. Um, however, we will uh, we will keep you where you are. So please do let us know if there are any other questions um, as we uh, just move to our. Um, last session of the evening. Um, so I would like to bring along now Angela O'Kane, um, who is an ECLO. Um, wonderful service. So I'm very, very much looking forward to, uh, to Angela's presentation. So Angela, across to you. 
Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm an echo. I hope you can see my screen. Can you see the screen okay? I've shared can, my screen. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, the ECLO service has been uh, in Northern Ireland now for about 20 years coming up to, and we're based throughout the, the five health trusts in Northern Ireland. So we're very lucky with full coverage. Um, so ECLOs can be key in helping eye clinic patients and their families understand the impact of their diagnosis and provide emotional and practical support for the next steps. Okay, um, they're a very friendly source of information and support. Um, they've got time to talk and listen, uh, which is great for patients. So what does support diagnosis offer? Um, we work closely with medical and nursing staff in the eye clinic and the sensory teams and social services. Um, ECLOs provide those recently diagnosed with an eye condition um, with the practical emotional support they need to understand their diagnosis and deal with their sight loss and maintain their independence. They act as a very important bridge um, between health and social services they also help prevent avoidable sight loss by talking through treatments and helping people to understand their medication when necessary. They have time to dedicate to patients uh, for their medical consultations so they can discuss the impact of the condition and the impact it might have on their lives. So what support do ECLOs offer patients? Well, ECLOs are there to provide up-to-date information and put patients in touch with useful services by making referrals on their behalf. So they can help patients to navigate the complex health and social care systems by completing a needs-led assessment, making referrals and signposting information on eye conditions and promote eye health and prevention advice. They also can advise on eye conditions. They can give practical support and advice about falls, reinforcing treatment compliance advice, advice about driving, um, they can also act as advocates for patients. They can demonstrate equipment and technology and help people uh, make help people get in touch with uh, more specialized supports. Um, they can advise on welfare benefits, um, about remaining in employment or retraining, about mental health and emotional well-being, and they can arrange specialist counseling um, for a patient or family member if and when needed and uh, they can link to then children's services and where to get help um, with difficulties in school. Um, we also are well connected to voluntary organisations and local support groups. ECLOs are also able to uh, explain the processes of CVI or the Certificate of Visual Impairment and the benefits of certification, um, which really is like a, a core help within ophthalmology and where in place can have a dramatic impact uh, on a patient's life. Okay. okay, so we can also put people in touch with RNIB services. Um, so there's a website there, RNIB uh, website, with information and support for people affected by sight loss and eye conditions, and, and also has information for professionals, and we have news and local services. Um, there's also a children, young people and families team. Um, there's an employment service, so a lot about uh, job retention and strategies are, are put in place and, and support can be put in place there too. Um, Counselling and wellbeing services, including living well with sight loss, um, which is really uh, 
a support group uh, and that has gone online uh, through COVID um, and it's been really busy through COVID as well. There's an RNIB helpline and site loss advice service, so the number's there. We have a technology for life team, uh, which can help people get the most out of their iPhones and iPads and, and get used to the, the accessible uh, technology surf, uh, features on just normal day-to-day -day technology products. Um, there's also a connect community that we can put people in touch with. Um, and that's really uh, like-minded people meeting up uh, for groups. So there's like a visually impaired uh, games group. And I think we're linking in now with RNAB in Scotland and um, uh, for people that are, are interested in that side of things. So it's all about help, support, reducing isolation um, and helping people with whatever they need. Okay, so where do you find the ECHOs? Well, basically the ECHOs are going to be in the clinics. Because they were in all areas of Northern Ireland. Um, you can link in with an ECHO through the clinic. Um, so ask the doctors, nurses and others, and they can refer uh, for ECHO support. Uh, you can also link through RNIB's helpline and the numbers there. So it's 0303 123 9999. Or there is an RNIB sightline directory. And you can look under the clinic or hospital that you attend and you can find the ECHO service through there. All of the names and numbers are there. So I wonder if there's any questions, but that's me for now. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks, Angela. Um, yeah, I would uh, highly recommend um, using the ECHO service if you do go to um, any of the eye clinics. Um, they uh, they really, really do do wonders um, for, uh, for for support in those environments. So, uh, so please do use their services. Um, so that's the end of all of our presentations this evening. So I'm just going to give you give everybody um, a final opportunity to um, to ask any questions if they have them. So again, you can either use the Q and A box at the bottom, or you can raise your hand. Um, so Alt and Y on a Windows computer, or Option and Y on a Mac if you're using a Mac, or just through the reactions you can raise your hand that way. Um, so there is one question that. Um, that has come up and that just is just around um, genetic counselling. So how can people access um, the genetic counselling service? Um, question I suppose for, for Claire. Hello. Yes, I'm aware Shane is there as well. I think he's still on, on the meeting. Um, so we certainly, the patients who come through Julie's clinic and get involved in the research study, um, can contact me and I've met quite a number of patients now about their research results. Well, I think what's important to remember is we're only here for the research end of things. And when we do find the gene mutation for a family, we can then refer people on to the Northern Ireland Regional Genetics Service. They will do the, what we call the family testing then, or the predictive testing within that family. They're based uh, over at the Belfast City Hospital, but they do regional clinics. Uh, throughout Northern Ireland, you've got consultants and you've got genetic counsellors based there. So really anybody who who knows that there's a gene in their family and they want testing, they should get a referral through the GP and it should go then to um, the genetic service in the city hospital. Um, Shane, do you want to add anything to that? 
Um, yeah, thanks, Claire. Yes, we're, as Claire says, we're based over in the City Hospital. We have genetic counsellors and doctors who operate right across Northern Ireland. So, for example, if you're in Derry, we could maybe see you up in Altmagelvin, or if you're in the southwest acute area in a county from Manor, we can see you down there and all over the nor Northern Ireland. Um, things we will want to discuss, obviously, are the condition, the gene, the inheritance within the family, the risks of recurrence. Um, Sometimes people want to know whether are there things that are relevant for their, their pregnancies, either now or in the future, or what's this going to mean for further down the family. If it's a child, they're talking about what are the prospects of the child either passing this condition on to their own children. All sorts of things like that, we're happy to deal with whatever those are, and also to put you into contact with other people who might, um, even like international research groups, uh, there's lots and lots of things that are going on. And we'll, we'll try and connect you with that expertise and uh, do what we can. Of course, there's a huge amount of expertise going on here in Northern Ireland and Claire and Julie and uh, Evelyn and Alex have been outlining that very well from the, the medical side and then uh, the, the living with side, which we're, we're also well connected with. So those are all, um, all things that we would like to try and facilitate through genetics. You can get referred in uh, generally, usually from the GP. If you're interested in that, you can go and see your GP and get referred in or from the eye clinic itself. So we get a lot of referrals in from Evelyn or Julie and the teams. So uh, yeah, we all work as, as one big team. Shane, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, that's wonderful. Um, have a question now for Angelo. It's just popped in. Um, Angelo, the question is, is there an echo available in Ferminar? I hope I've just pronounced that right. Um, there's nobody based there right now, but um, there's somebody that does cover there remotely. So if they want to get in touch, um, we'll be able to put them uh, put them together with the echo. Yeah. And are they best doing that through the RNIB helpline? Um, if they want to give you even their details, I can, you know, if you give them to me, I can help them out. Okay, wonderful. So, um, so Diane, who asked that question, so I'll uh, contact Diane afterwards, and we can um, we can get that information to you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Angela. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, so there's no other questions that have come up. However, we have had a, um, a comment. Excellent session this evening. Very much appreciated. It's always so encouraging to see the enthusiasm as well as the expertise of those working in the field. Um, yes, I completely echo that. Thank you ever so much. Um, so Jenny's just come up with a, a question. Uh, I already have genetic testing and know my genetic result. How do I find out how advanced any trials might be in... FAM161A. I'm going to refer that one to Julie, I think. Hi. Um, so, uh, hi, Jenny. Uh, thanks for asking the question. So, is that our family 161A? I presume. Um, so, I, I think if you, we'll have a look at that for you and um, pick up on, on the genetic mutation and we'll come back to you if that's okay. Thank you. Brilliant, Julie. Thank you. And yes, we will uh, we will coordinate that. Um, another one that's just popped through. Um, this is more of a comment than a question regarding street navigation. Apps like uh, Lazario or Microsoft Soundscape can help. The services like Aria, which is a paid one, and Be My Eyes, which is free, um, provide sighted guidance, which can help you avoid obstacles on the pavement. But how many visually impaired people are aware of them? 
Um, so yes, there are an awful lot of apps um, available out there. Navigation apps um, are come through thick and fast. Uh, it's something that I know RNIB have done a lot of work with um, and something that uh, REST in the UK are also looking at at the moment. And I will cover one other point um, about that when I come to do my close, because we have got a session around navigation apps coming up as a webinar. Um, so that's all of the questions we've got at the moment. I'm literally just going to leave it a few more seconds just to see if we get a final one come through. And if not, I'm going to just conclude the session this evening. So yes, I would just like to thank all of our speakers um, this evening. Um, it's been a fantastic um, couple of hours, really, really insightful. Um, and thank you all for attending. Um, it really makes it worthwhile for us to see so many of you come to join us. Um, so just to let you know um, of what's happening over the next um, month or so, um, as I said earlier, we have um, different webinars happening, at least one every month. Um, so just uh, over the next few weeks, we've got a couple more online events that you may or may not be interested in. Um, so Wednesday the 13th of October, we've got a similar event um, as we've had tonight, um, but for people who are in Wales, um, whilst it may be geographically um, different to where you are, some of the content may be of interest. Uh, we have on Wednesday the 27th of October, we're joined by um, Michael Gilhooley, who's got a fascinating presentation on optogenetics. And as I said, there will be a presentation um, in November. Uh, we're planning this one at the moment around um, navigation apps and aids. Um, so please do look out for that. So we will be sending out an email in the next couple of days, uh, which will detail where you can rewatch or listen to any of this evening's presentations um, and how you can book onto the other events I've just mentioned. We will also be seeking your feedback on today's session um, and we value all of your feedback. Um, any feedback we do get will help us develop our webinars and our other services. Um, so please do, um, please do help with, uh, with leaving feedback when it comes through over the next couple of days. Um, so once again, thank you ever so much. And we look forward to seeing you on our other webinars. So thank you very much, everybody. And good night.